Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, uh, resuming my podcast now. Now it took off for Pesach. I'm sure, everybody did. Yeah, full plate over here. Uh, but I'm going to try to hop around. I saw that this week you have the yard site of the famous Yosef Halevi Ibn Migash, Rimigash, they call him in yeshivas. Uh, this is somebody who can say something about, even though not much is known about him personally. Here you have a famous person from a thousand years ago in the late 1000s, 1100s, in the golden age of the Jews in Spain. And I've talked about this a little bit here and there, but this gives me an opportunity to sort of concentrate on this for a moment. The Jews were in Spain for many hundreds of years. And they were first under the Muslims and later under the Christians. Uh, they were in the Muslims for, uh, oh, I don't know, it was approximately the year 720 or so, up to about 1160, you know, that kind of business. And then the Muslims changed their mind and became intolerant. And that was the end of the Judaism in Spain. And then it picked up in the other part of Spain, with the Christian part, and that's what it was until 1492. So you, whenever you talk about the history of Jews in Spain, you're either talking about A or B, the Muslim period or the Christian period. And Spain is this far it. became a big Malcolm Torah, the major uh, center of Jewish culture, I think. Everybody knows that. Now, uh, the Jews in Spain, especially in the first half, uh, most of what we know about that has to do with what I always like to call the Haskalah, meaning we have voluminous writings from famous Jewish scholars and everything other than Gemara. Oh, you have poets, uh, Diktuk people, once in a while time people thought Diktuk was really hot, believe it or not. Um, I do, but I'm a weirdo, you know, to, to get wild about Shvonos and, and uh, you know, uh, verbs and things. I'm serious. Uh, the the Diktuk we use today is basically taken from that period in Spain. Uh, philosophy, um, even history, believe it or not. Uh, various disciplines, but not Gamar. Now, this is what they mean by the golden age of Jews in Spain, because the historians came with that title, we're not from, and therefore they're referring to not Gamar. However, it is true that Spain became a major center of Talmud study of Gamar, which is why the Sephardic tradition is around today. Not because of these other poets that nobody ever heard of. Now, what do we know about that? Here it's very tricky. Because, as I said before, the Muslims took over in the early 700s. We have very little information about people in Spain who are great scholars of Tershavapev, Talmud and Postkim, that sort of thing, in the 700s, in the 800s. Not, not really. If anything, Spain seems to be a place where the Jews were from, but not very learned, because a ton of the Shilohs of the what they called the Chubas of Gaonim that were questions sent to Babylonia to the big yeshivas that were in Sur and Pomodisa, the yeshivas in Baghdad in, that have survived in the Geniza and places like that from the 800s and 900s are usually from Spain. 
which indicates that they didn't have the big scholars over there. They just wait from it. They send all the shows to uh, be answered in, in the Shivas in Babylonia. However, eventually things change. Sooner or later, Spain turned into an independent center of yeshivas and uh, serious top-level Gomorrah study. This happened, as far as we know, most famously in the 900s when the different parts of Muslim Spain were combined under the rulership of a very famous ruler, famous uh, emperor, the Caliph Abdurman III. I think I've spoken about him before. And he had that Jewish doctor who was like non-official Henry Kissinger for him, Khazdi bin Shaprut. And without spending a lot of time on it, one of the things that happened during this guy's watch was that all of Spain was united under one ruler. The capital city was Cordoba, which is really quite a city. I've been there. Uh, very beautiful. And uh, Cordoba became a major center of, of international intellectuality, Islamic intellectuality, and even secular uh, intellectuality, libraries, universities, things like that. Yeah, it really was once upon a time. This is what the Arabs called the Golden Age of the Arabs. They're, they lost it. Now, similarly, the Jewish community under Chaz David Shabbat, he was the millionaire, he was the head guy, he was a big doctor. They set up this guy, uh, who was it again? Ramosha ben Chanoch. I believe I told you this already. That's the story of the four captives. Uh, whether it's exactly true or not, but roughly something like it happened. Some big scholar from somewhere, doesn't seem like from Babel, for some big Rosh Hashiva type, ended up being captured in a pirate ship and then ransomed out in Cordoba. And it's the Middle Ages, you know, that's what piracy was a business, that's what she did. And uh, within a short time, I'll leave the stories out, within a short time, he founded a yeshiva, because they saw he's a big scholar, um, in Cordoba, and that became a big muckum toward nose. He was a high-level scholar. So just imagine like a Byron Cutler or that sort of kind of business, landing in Cordoba. He had a large Jewish community. They were B-level learners, and he raised them to A-level learners. And that means from that time on, from let's say the middle 900s, throughout into the 10 hundreds, this person, Ramosh Mechanuch, and then his son took over Rashib after him. Surprise, surprise, that's how it goes. When the father dies, he leaves over to the son. That's very important in what I want to tell you tonight. Um, and the, he was also a big Talmud Chacham, although he had big fights with other scholars who wanted to knock him out. There's, that's Gansamises. You know, they, they put one of them, wanted to put him on a ship. I'm serious. And sent him to the Atlantic with nobody on board. They played some hardball in those days. But anyway, um, so the son was the head of the yeshiva. And then what happened was, this yeshiva fell apart. So he had like a shtickle, Volusian situation, if I can use that term, in which he had a super yeshiva. But then the caliphate of Cordoba collapsed around the year 10, 11, 10, 12, uh, for certain internal Islamic reasons. And instead of all of Islamic Spain being ruled from Cordoba by one ruler, they broke up into all kinds of different city-states, and they all fought each other. So in Cordoba was a battle of warlords, and the Jews apparently backed the wrong guy. And therefore the Jewish community was in trouble for a while and, 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 and collapsed. And that she was done. That's the end of that baby. So then what happened at that point in the early, early 1100s, as far as adv- Lakewood is concerned, as far as Pondavish is concerned, advanced learning? Where did it go? And the answer is interesting. Um, one of the graduates was Shmuel Hanagid, very famous person on his own. Again, there's no time. To, to talk about him. That's a four-hour person. 
Uh, I, I'm not exaggerating. But he eventually became the prime minister in Granada, the kingdom in the south of Spain, not that far away from Cordoba. And he was a remarkable guy. He was a big Tamachacham, a general, a prime minister, all at the same time. Head of the CIA, the FBI, the Treasury Department. I mean, he was just incredible. And he was also Rosh Hashiva, believe it or not. He was a big Tamachacham. He had learned in Cordoba. And he established in Granada a high-level Yeshiva because he was loaded. He was a prime minister. He could afford to, you know, maintain guys in full-time learning, get, get quality people. We even have a couple of poems uh, from him, poems, I say, into the middle 10 hundreds, in which he's making fun of Magid Shears who don't know what they're doing, and he said, you, you, you're teaching like women or something like that. You know, that was a big diss in the uh, Islamic world of the 10th of the 11th century. Anyhow, uh, so this Yeshiva was there for a while. However, uh, it was eventually transferred from Granada to not, a city not too far away, Lucina, uh, Lucina, which was an all-Jewish town, uh, Nogayim, and uh, it was fortified. So it was like a Jewish castle. Isn't that interesting? In the middle of Islamic Spain. And uh, it was an all-Jewish city, and uh, therefore the Jews could defend themselves. And uh, they put the yeshiva over there, and this uh, Shmuel HaNagid, when he died, his son became his successor as the prime minister, but he ticked off the Arabs, and the Jews in Granada with the sun were all massacred in the year 1066. It's easy to remember, same year as the Battle of Hastings. And it was a good thing, therefore, that they had moved that yeshiva out of the city of Granada where the massacre happened to Lucina. And this yeshiva in Lucina was run by somebody that Shmuel Anuga had appointed. See, he was the prime minister and the rich guy, you know. He's like uh, Ron Culler and Reichman rolled into one. And he really was. And so the result is, he could appoint anybody who wants to run the place. And he appointed what the yeshiva called the Ritzkiyas, or Ritzkiyas Gayat, was a big rabbi. And he ran that yeshiva. I'm skipping a lot of details, but this is all you need to know. Uh, for many years, uh, as I said before, the... Uh, the, the, the Shmuel and Nugget died around 1050-something. And this person I'm talking about lived till almost 1090. Mm-hmm. So you had somebody running a, a very important yeshiva in a stable way for several decades. So if you went in the 10 hundreds to Islamic Spain, um, anywhere in Spain, frankly, that's Lakewood. That's Ponovich. That's Demir. That's the place you want to go to if you want to learn at a high level. That's how it went. And so the result was that there was maintained in Spain. At the same time, they have what they call the golden age with the poets and the grammarians and the historians and the scientists. You also have some high-level learners. That's a fact. Now, this Rebitzig Ibn Gayat, he uh, ran the place until he died, which in 1089. I know these. I don't want to bore you with the, with the dates, but it's important over here. And our hero today, who's the art site, uh, Yosef Alebi Ibn Migash, was born in 1077. So that means that he was 12 years old when the Rashiva died of the Yeshiva. Uh, we call him Rimigash. Yosef Rimigash is from Seville. All these cities are not that far away from each other because they're in southern central Spain. I've been there. Um, and uh, at a very young age, he could, you know, he's, he's, some people it's actually true when you read these stories, like at Olameno, they were genius from a young age. Once in a while, it's actually so. So it seems by him it was actually so. And he learned with a certain rabbi you never heard of. And then at the age of 
of, of 12, so that'd be 1089, something very interesting happened. And that is that in the Sheba Lucina, the Pelagian I've been talking about, the old man, the Rashiva, died. And just at that time, a new guy came over from outside Spain. And they gave him the job to be the next Rosh Hashiva. Isn't that interesting? Just a total outsider. Why? He the riff. The Yitzhak Alfasi, the famous riff. And uh, he was a rabbi from North Africa. And he was like 75 years old. So he spent the whole career as being some kind of Ad Yosef type in North Africa. In uh, Algeria, Morocco, those places. Which are not Sfarnim. The Sfarnim live in Spain. Remember that. This is in the 10 hundreds. They're North African Jews. He got into a fight at the age of 75 with one of the Balabatim. Who knows what these guys are nuts, these rich people, you know. And they wanted to get him in trouble or kill him or something like that. Imagine a 75-year-old Rashiva. And he fled to Spain. So here's somebody fleeing at the age of 75. Since he was world-renowned as the Riff, the famous uh, writer of the Sefer Halachas and all that, you know, the one of the major Rishonim, big Halachas. So... And since the other guy just died, Ibn Gayat, the people in the yeshiva like this, you take the job. You're, 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 you're an outstanding world figure. It might also be, if I wanted to be cynical, they figure he's 75, how long will he last? This will give us a time to pick somebody new. Lahavdal um, used to happen to the post like that. But anyway, the bottom line is, he stayed from 1089 to 1103, died in 1103. So here's somebody who became Rashiva in his late 70s, and was the head of the yeshiva till he was 90 years old, in his 80s, primarily. So, this is very interesting. The, uh, this, our hero today, Yosef Ibn Migash, who was like 12 years old, came to the yeshiva with the new guy, with the new Rosh Yeshiva, and he immediately formed a bond with him, and they learned B'chavrus and that sort of thing, because, you know, the old man saw that the young guy is very smart and all that, and had nice mm-hmm. midos. And the result is, he had a remarkable relationship that uh, 14 years. Uh, imagine a kid starting at 12 in Eloy, learning with the Godel Ador, shall we use that term, uh, for 14 years in, until the old man died at the age of 90. Uh, so he had like a, exactly the world that he wanted. Now, here comes the interesting part. Then in 1103, when the Rip was 90 years old, he died. So the question now became, who becomes the Next, Rosh Hashiva. This is where you get into yeshivish of politics. Let's make the story interesting. Because the Rif had a son, and uh, it's only natural he wanted the son to take over. He also had some other students of his that were top guys over there. And he had this young guy, Yosef Migash. Now, if he's born in 1077, so he was 26 years old. So can you imagine to put the head of Lakewood, or put the head of uh, Demir Panovich, a 26-year-old guy, who's not from the family? simply because he's the best guy in learning. And, you know, you can always argue, my son or son-in-law is also very good. So how do you know who's the best guy? Now, here's the thing. Here's where the historical research comes in. The later writers uh, wrote, and they said, everything was uh, peachy keen and smooth, and the riff left like a will, and he said, I want the best student to take it, and, uh, you know, that this Rimigasha becomes Rosh Hashim, all the rest of it. If you actually read closer... There were fights, because that's what's going to happen. And how do I know this? One of the people in the yeshiva, let me put it this way, when the old man died, 
when the rift died, so the yeshiva immediately formed into factions. Who should be the next head? This is so typical in the history of yeshivas, it's ridiculous. We have in Lithuania, you have it in Poland, you have it in Germany, many examples of this. And they immediately formed factions. So some wanted to support, were backing that the rift should be succeeded by his son, which is the typical. Uh, others said that they should be by the son of Yitzhak Abali, I think, or something like that. Yitzhak ben Baruch. And some were facing, backing this guy, Yosef Alevi Migash, who was the youngest, but apparently the most genius of them. Uh, it so happened, for historical purposes, one of the people in the faction that was in favor of the young guy was the famous poet Yehuda Levi. And since he was a poet, he wrote these famous poems that have survived. And believe it or not, one of the poems is about the politics and the yeshiva there. Not um, openly, but quite obliquely, but very clearly. Uh, it's called Rabbi Yosef Alevi Migash B'Shiftu Al-Kisei Rabba Hari Al-Fasi. So it's exactly entitled over there. And you see, by reading between the lines, and it doesn't take that hard, that what happened was there were fights for several months until finally the people said, you have to give it to the most qualified guy, no matter how young he is, and no matter who he's related to, who he's not related to. And there's a whole long poem, one of several, by Behuda Levi, who is, of course, the greatest poet, usually considered the greatest poet of the golden age of the Jews in Spain, and arguably uh, by others. And what does he do? He has a whole long poem in which he said, He said, today, finally, uh, the good guys went out for a change, and not just the uh, yichus and, uh, you know, who you're related to and all the rest of it. In America, we call a merit appointment, and he obviously represents the faction that is, that you know, is, is uh, ecstatic because their candidate uh, won, and he's saying, oh, my goodness, Uri, Safwan, Afichi, Gani, Yaldabasamov, all I want all the winds to blow, Valkiner Levi Salchi, and blow on the on the Kiner of Levi. Of course, that's himself, but it's also the new Russian Sheba of Levi. And I want to just read you this this small part. He says, Omnum at at uh, at Rosh Plelios Yehosef Ravalilus. You are the most qualified person over here. Hakim Chelhim Lahachios Avidasleshios. Hashem has obviously intervened that you should get this kind of a job. Hayom Yad Ho'emes Gavra. Here, today, for a change, Emes won out, meaning merit won out over um, nepotism. V'tzedek Omen Al-Kano, and justice uh, triumphed. V'gavu Ma'alus HaTorah, V'kavad Hushalei Sono. And uh, as a result of you becoming the Rosh Hashiva, getting the merit winning out, so the Ma'alus HaTorah is raised, and covet is returned to its place because if you give it to somebody who's just a relative to be the head and he's not qualified, then covet runs away. And he goes on to say, So necha yubushuboshes, your enemies are now covered with shame. For ohel rishanaminenu, and the tent of the wicked, that's the guys favoring the other candidates. Um, they're now gone and they're uh, running back and forth, and it's really amazing. And he wrote many poems about this person that he admired. As the big Rosh Hashiva. Uh, he, I'm talking about Yehuda Levi over here. You have to know you mentally be poultry. I get it. Not many people are into that stuff. Only weirdos like me. But uh, he, he's unbelievable. He says, Haluchos on When you're alive, if you're giving shear, the luchos never were broken. You see, because you're alive. Aron Bekruv lo nikbro. And the Aron is still here. It wasn't buried in the ground. And Samba Hod Sameo. And oh my goodness, one after another. Now, this person... Yosef Alevi Ibn Migash, what they call him, the Rimigash, 
he headed this yeshiva, let's see now, for almost 40 years, from 1103 to, I think he died in 1141. So that means the yeshiva was run by the most qualified person, and that took it to its zenith. So this is a history of yeshiva that started under uh, Shmuel Nugget, and then w- went to a big level under the Ritzkias, and then the Rif, and then after the Rif, the Rimigash. So this is a galaxy of highly qualified Rosh Hashivas, you know, of, of, of Gedoli Hador, and that's what turned out this very interesting phenomenon called the Sephardish Agadol of the Arab period. Now, um, this is a yeshiva that had many, many students, and if you want to get an idea of what their style is, what their style of learning, the answer is there's one person that you can get it from, and that's the Rambam. And the reason is because this yeshiva had many students over the decades. He attained the world fame. It's hard to explain the podcast, you know, who Godel is and all, but nevertheless, the Rimigash became one of the b- biggest people in the world in his time, and you have Shiles and Jews from all over the world. All over the world, I say. And at that time, the Jews still had it good in Spain, under the Muslims. And, uh, he, you know, he lived and died at the right time. He died before the Muslims changed their mind. The new group came in. He died before that. And one of the students was the Rambam's father. Okay? Maimon. Moshe Ben Maimon. And uh, the Rambam grew up, if you know his biography, after the... Uh, by the time he became Bar Mitzvah, you know, the, the Almohads, the uh, uh, anti-Jewish Muslims took over, and then he had to, like, learn hiding with his father. He never went to yeshiva or anything like that. And that's who the Rambam is. And here's... So he got all his learning from his father. His father got all the learning from the Rimigash. So if you want to know how you learn Gemara, or how you paskin, uh, you look at the writings of, the, uh, uh, of Maimonides. The Mishnah Torah, uh, the Pirish Mishnayis, all those things... This is has the stamp of the golden age of the Jews in Islamic Spain. And uh, that's the sheet of the Rambam. He says it many times. He says, I paskin like this. And uh, this is the way they did it in my father's place. And that's the way the Rift did it. And that's the way the Rimigash did it. And he says in the Pirish Mishnah that you, you have no idea who the Rimigash was. His zikar and his memory was terrifying. Because he had unbelievably photographic memory. And the man was very great. And uh, if you read the Shuvah, so if you want to know who the Rimigash is, you can do it the hard way, which is he left a few writings. Apparently he wrote on all shots, but all that survives, I think, is about Basra and Shulis, I believe. Um, but you can do it the easy way, which is to read the Rambam, who writes very clearly and very easy, you know, for dummies. And uh, with the Rambam, you are getting the, uh, uh, what should I say, the way of studying the Torah from the tradition of the Yeshiva Lucina. That is who the Rambam is. Um, now, the Rambam was so sure that his way is the correct way because in Spain, what's there to talk about? It's Lucina, it's the Yeshiva, it's the Rimigash, it's the Rif, it's the Rimigash, the Ritzkias. You know, it had such a glorious tradition that I'm sure the Rambam was convinced this way of learning Gemara is the only way of learning the Gemara, and this way of Paskening is the only way of Paskening. And when he issued the Mishnah Torah, he says, you don't have to rely on any other books. Just read my book and you know what the din is and all the rest of it. Obviously, that didn't work with the rest of the world. Uh, the Ashkenazim and the other, they said, you know, that's how you may learn in Spain. It's not necessarily how we learn it over here. But I do totally understand the confidence where the Rambam is coming from because they were very high-level solid learning in this yeshiva. Unfortunately, after the death of the Rimigash, which is in 1141, given another 10 years, and it all was destroyed. Like, 
the yeshivas in Lithuania, like the yeshivas in Poland, is episode. They came, they had their glory years, and then for one reason or another were destroyed, usually by, by Goyim, by, by persecution. So we're left with a situation which we have a very great man, but we don't know that much about him, unless you look at his writings, but he didn't leave a whole lot. There's, uh, I've seen his Shalos and Shubas uh, of, of Dreaming Gosh. They're very interesting sometimes. Obviously he gets all kind of uh, cases over there. I remember one that's really cool in which they asked, what's the story with, with the rule, a Talmud Chacham is allowed to lend on ribbis because if you know the rules, you can do it in such a way that it's not exactly really ribbis. You say you're just giving as a present. And he said, He says, I would only permit this to a Talmud Chacham who's from, <laughs> there are plenty of Talmud Chacham that are from, Boy, oh boy, look at they had at that time, these guys who knew how to learn very well, had long beards and are cheating in business. <laughs> you know, a thousand years ago in Spain, he said, I'm only allowing this heter, Yechidim Akshem Shebehem, the Talmud Chacham, the few that are actually kosher. My, 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 things haven't, uh, haven't changed uh, that much. Uh, I've gone a long time, so maybe I'll just slow this down, but uh, I just want to make one last point, and that is, as I said, you had a very high, obviously, it goes out saying you had a very high level of learning over here. What's fascinating is that the Rimigash is a contemporary of the Balitosis. And that means that well, just at the time they started to uh, write down uh, dialectical analyses of the Talmud, which you compare one place with the other, and so forth, uh, not like Rashi, for example, uh, and this is going on in northern France, you have the same thing happening in southern Spain. And I'm not aware that there's any um, communication to one and the other. I think more, it has more to do, if I understand it correctly, with the fact that once you reach a certain level of bikias and knowledge in the whole shas, then th- this mode of analysis just suggests itself. It's how do you collate? How do you compare contrast? How do you come up with a final synthetic approach to a sugya? And here you have Rimi Gash doing it throughout all of shas. Uh, as I say before, the Rambam doesn't write like that, but it's clear that he totally can. It's just not what he chose to do. Once in a while, rarely in his chubas, the Rambam actually does that. But, uh, you know, give a whole lumdish uh, treatment of, uh, of a subject. But usually, you know, it's not his style. But you can see from the Rimigash, that is what they did in that Yeshiva baby. Obviously, it wasn't just simply memorizing a lot of Bikiyas. So, here I'm taking you into a world that obviously no longer exists. The sad part is, within a decade or so, after the death of the Rimigash, his own kids had to flee from Muslim Spain, the north, to the Christian part, because it just became impossible to be Jewish under this uh, extremist Islamic uh, kind of business. Maimonides himself ran away to other Muslim areas. The family of Ibn Migash ran away to the Christian areas, such as the fate of our people, that even when they had these good times, but uh, you know they weren't destined to last very long. So anyway, I just wanted to share that business. There's a name, really, from the past that you hear once in a while in the yeshivas, but I'm sure they have no idea of uh, of who this person is. That's all for now.